In his book, Let Your Life Speak, the Quaker poet, author, and teacher Parker Palmer tells the story of being offered the presidency of a small educational institution. It was a good job, and he wanted to accept it. But as a faithful Quaker, he thought he should engage in some proper discernment. He brought together what's called a clearness committee, a half dozen trusted and faithful friends. Instead of offering advice, their role was to ask open-ended, honest questions. Through conversation, Parker could then discern his vocational call for himself. The job seemed like the right fit for him. How much more wonderful would it be to accept this prestigious position after this communal discernment? Halfway through this three-hour meeting, a friend asked Palmer what he would most like about being president. He mentioned several things he wouldn't enjoy, like wearing a tie, at which his friend pointed out that he wasn't answering the question. Palmer paused, like I did just then, <laughs> thought a bit, and then, quote, gave an answer that appalled me even as I spoke it. Well, I said in the smallest voice I possess, I guess what I'd like most is getting my picture in the paper with the word president under it. He concludes, I was sitting with seasoned Quakers who knew that though my answer was laughable, my mortal soul was clearly at stake. They did not laugh at all, but went into a long and serious silence, a silence in which I could only sweat and inwardly groan. Finally, my questioner broke the silence with a question that cracked all of us up and cracked me open. Parker, can you think of an easier way to get your picture in the paper? By then it was obvious even to me that my desire to be president had much more to do with my ego than with the ecology of my life. The clearness committee had made things clear and so he withdrew his name from the search. Parker Palmer thought he was seeking after a good thing. By every outward sign and even some inward ones, he was on the right track, asking for greatness. I imagine that James and John thought they were on the right track too. In Matthew's gospel, the brothers put their mother up to it, and in Mark's gospel, they just go ahead and ask themselves, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. And in both gospel recountings of this moment, the brothers are ready at once to back up their audacious request. They are ready to drink the cup. They are ready to run the race. At least, they think they are. They want to sit with Jesus in his kingdom. That's a pretty bold request. Honestly, it clearly deeply offends their friends, though whether the other disciples are insulted that James and John have asked for glory or merely upset that they didn't think to ask first is unclear. What is clear immediately, to Jesus at least, is that the brothers don't know what they are asking. Jesus hears what James and John could not hear in their own words, that their request for greatness, glory, and power mimicked the state power of Rome. The petty overlords who oppressed the Jews with taxes, who exploited them, the same authorities who would execute Jesus in a few days. 
You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, Jesus says. The same power-hungry oppressors that the disciples despised, they are now subconsciously imitating I feel bad for James and John every year on this, their feast day, that for all the incredible moments they were present for and for all they got right, we commemorate them by dwelling on what they got terribly, terribly wrong. But even in his misstep, St. James's human example here is helpful for us because he and his brothers question their longings after greatness To me, it exemplifies one of the biggest challenges facing us as Christians today. We find it so hard, even impossible, to break out of the ways of the world. The habits of mind, the usual setup and the normal procedures, even when we desperately want to change, our solutions can so often run right along the same tracks we were already going over. James and John are not only looking forward to the kingdom because they might want to sit in it. They are zealous for God. They expect and want Jesus to be glorified. They expect and want the world's wrongs to be righted. But their imaginations are too small. God's kingdom will have a king just like Rome has an emperor. Another rehearsal of hierarchy, but just right this time. This is the view that we see so often today that says the answer to unregulated businesses exploiting the poor is regulations. The answer to buying lots of disposable stuff we don't need is to buy new eco-friendly stuff to replace it. The cure for our political polarization is meant to come from our polarized politics. In the words of the brilliant Audre Lorde, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And in the words of Jesus, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Jesus knows what his disciples can only dimly grasp, that nothing can change unless everything changes. God's dream for us is so different than our own, we won't realize it with a few tweaks and shifts in the life we're already living. God alone is the way, the truth, and the life. All other ways are dead ends, All competing truths are fictions, and the life of the world doesn't end anywhere but the grave. As long as the kingdom of heaven we're building looks like the kingdoms we know on earth, we'll just never get there. It will not be so among you, Jesus says. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Service of others is not means to an end. Service is the end. Service is abundance, service is power, service is glory. As the author Debbie Thomas writes, the only path to success in Jesus's kingdom economy is through the surrendering of our most cherished forms of entitlement. By all means, aspire to glory, but recognize that glory by Jesus's definitions is not an accretion of privilege. It's not upward mobility. It's not permission to guard hoard, and multiply your own. Glory in God's kingdom is an exercise in subtraction. It's a movement downwards. It's the generous and perpetual expending of oneself in love. And love is what this is all about. 
It's the font of creation. It's why God made the world, why any of us are here. Love is why Jesus was here. Incarnation is about love transforming our lives in the most basic ways of how we relate to one another. That God loves us, which enables us to love God and to love our neighbors and even to love ourselves. When our systems are built without love at their core, when we form our habits without love as their guiding principle, they will always be hollow. And just as the stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone, we will need to build something new altogether if we want love as the foundation, if we want self-sacrifice as the foundation, if we want humility and thanksgiving as our foundation. God's glory doesn't look like what we've already seen, but at the same time, when it comes, we will recognize it. Just like James and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee, Jesus saw them in their fishing boat and called out to them to follow him. And they did, just like that. God called out to them and they answered. They were ready for the Messiah. They thought they were asking to take part in glory. And of course, ultimately, they were. And with God's help, we will be too.